Good afternoon. This is Chicky Fitzgerald. It's Friday, May 22nd, 2015, and I am so happy to welcome back Jane Bliss. Uh, we spoke back, I believe it was in 2012. She wrote, actually, uh, in October of 2011, she wrote an amazing book about customer loyalty called I Love You More Than My Dog, Five Decisions That Drive Extreme Customer Loyalty in Good Times and Bad. And she's back today to talk about her latest book, which is actually coming out on June 15th, and it is called Chief Customer Officer 2.0, How to Build Your Customer-Driven Growth Engine. And I love that title, Jean. <laughs> Welcome back. Thanks, Chicky. Gosh, it's so great to be back with you. Well, I know, and I can't believe it's been so long. I, you know, I've been doing these radio shows since 2008, and uh, you know, sometimes I just cannot believe that it's you know already the middle of 2015. My daughter is just uh, today is the last day of school for her junior year, and she's going to be oh, a senior. And wow. my son's moving into high school in the fall, so uh, time is just flying by. But Jean, why don't you, for the folks who didn't hear our original interview on on uh, I love you more than my dog, mm-hmm. why don't you tell them a little bit about you and how you came to write these books? because uh, customer experience is, is something a lot of folks have written about, but I think you've really changed the name of the game. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Well, the the wonderful path that I've had is that I am a practitioner first. I, I'm not somebody sitting on the sidelines doing research and observing great companies. I was actually inside um, since 1983 working for uh, large companies at their pinnacle in many cases of being customer centric and it started at Land's End who back in the day was a real beacon. Um, They've had some challenges lately but back in the day this was the company that all eyeballs were on and I was a part of building who they were from a customer centricity standpoint. I reported to Gary Comer and the founder of of the executive committee at Land's End um, for 10 years and then went on and reported to um, the president or into the C-suite of Mazda Corporation, Allstate Corporation, Coldwell Banker Corporation, and Microsoft Corporation, all at the uh, headquarters level, all leading um, for the first time in most cases um, the role of either the chief customer officer or the VP of customer experience to unite the organization. So I've pushed the customer rock up the hill personally, um, and then, <laughs> and um, since then I've been coaching companies and the emerging customer executive leadership role, which is becoming more and more prevalent. And in um, 2011, as you mentioned, I, I published my second book called "I Love You More Than My Dog," and that book was about decision making, about making a decision in a deliberate way to become a beloved and prosperous company that earned the right to your customers' raves, such as I love you more than my dog, especially in a world of social media. And that is the Beacon book. That's a easy, fun read to help leaders paint a picture for their organization of what they want to become. And um, this new book, Chief Customer Officer 2.0, is an updated, completely new book from my first Chief Customer Officer book, based on the past 12 years of coaching the C-suite and the uh, customer leadership executive around the world. Right. Well, I think you just designed the cover of your next book, which is Pushing the Customer Rock Up the Hill. I, <laughs> I, can, I can already see that in my mind. 
Well, in fact, what's fun is in the um, book, I interviewed 40 chief customer officers around the world, and their stories are actually called My Rock, My Story. And it's uh, it's a, a little cartoonish man pushing a huge boulder up the hill. So um, that's oh, I what love we all, that. Yeah, we all feel a little bit akin to Sisyphus in this work once in a while. Who, as people, if people don't know, Sisyphus was the guy who uh, kept pushing the rock up the hill, and it kept rolling back down in his head. So there you go. Well, terrific. Well, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about why you felt you you needed to put this in writing. You know, we we have a lot of folks who listen to our show, um, and and primarily women, but we we certainly have a, our share of men as well, who you know have played a lot of roles in their lives, and and some like me spent the first half of their career in, in corporate life and then we became what I call corporate escape artists and we mm-hmm. figured out that the skills that we had were actually way more marketable outside the corporate environment and yep. you know I I've had a, a consulting firm for 19 years but you know I know so many people feel like they've got a book inside of them uh, right. I just finished the That's manuscript true. on my first uh, allegorical business novel which has been something I've wanted to write uh, for about a decade wow. and have finally done so how did you actually decide to take that plunge and to write about it, and how did you get published with this topic? Um, well, my first book was called Chief Customer Officer, and that I, I had left Microsoft, and which was my last corporate gig, like you and I, you, you just mentioned. Right. And I knew I needed to create the guidebook that I wish I had had for those 25-plus years, you know, reinventing the wheel every time. And so a good friend of mine, was uh, published by Josie Bass Wiley at the time, and she made an introduction, and it changed my life because uh, from that I got my first publishing contract. And, and again, when you're, you know, you have to have a platform and a background, and that was in my pocket because I had so much practical experience. Of course. And um, so that was how my first book came to be. And and for me, these books are really come from a place of I just want to help. I've lived the life, and... A lot of people write about this, but if you haven't lived the life, you can't. It's hard to write the toolkit. It's hard to really break it. In, you know, right? We break it into bite-sized pieces. My writing style. I learned how to write from Gary Comer, who was the founder of Lands End, and he said, "Write like you talk." And it's you know, when people read these books, they're like, "Are you sitting in my office writing this?" How do you? <laughs> and and I love it. I just love it. And that's really been. Um, my joy. So, oh, it's but, so funny because when when I wrote my first manuscript of my book, and again, you know, it's an allegorical novel about yeah. a, a story, but all of the elements of the story have its basis in fact in my life and in my experience. And I wrote the entire first draft of the manuscript without realizing I had no dialogue. And apparently that's like the the uh, cardinal sin that happens with every first author. That uh, and I had to go back and take what were were conversations in people's heads of thinking oh, about what they were going to say and right. turn it into dialogue. So that is so funny that you you talk about people's reactions to that. So let's talk about the framework for the book because, sure. um, you know, I love it that you start the book with talking about a reading roadmap, oh, and mm-hmm. and I am such a sucker for for books that are are well organized, uh, thought wise that really take you through a progression. Of, yep. of where you need to get to, uh, you know, to understand the topic. So talk to me about that reading roadmap. 
Well, I love that you brought that up, and here's the thing. In, I put that in there for, for a, a big reason, which is I have to eat my own dog food. I tell <laughs> all my clients, you need to give your customers a roadmap. Yes. You need to build a an, an roadmap for your organization. And, and the reading roadmap just organizes the book and takes people through why each chapter exists. And it starts with um, building clarity for the role of the chief customer officer and then the dissection of uh, then there's a whole chapter on uniting leaders, which is the foundational element to being successful in any kind of transformational transformation. And then there's a, a chapter on each of the five competencies, which we can talk about in a second. And then the last chapter is kind of my really fun, cool chapter, which is it's organized for um, CEOs, people potentially wanting the role, and the executive recruiter um, community who are trying to fill these new roles without the guideposts for who mm. to look for, what questions to ask. So it's a whole toolkit for creating the role, filling the role, and becoming the role. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, let's start at the beginning, and let's okay. talk about the clarity around that role. And you build this on, on the pillars of five customer leadership competencies. What are those? Okay, well, thanks. And these five competencies are a combination of, again, practical experience, having been a practitioner in five different industries. And I deliberately, through my career, moved from industry to industry because, you know, Land's End was easy from a standpoint of making things happen, but automotive is different. Insurance is different. Technology, especially a big company like Microsoft, is different. And so the reason I built the competencies was because these are – can be customizable, but what it does is creates an evergreen engine. I'm going to walk you through them. Um, so competency one is honoring and managing customers as assets of the business. This means knowing and creating a simple success metric of what customers actually did. Did you keep more customers than you lost? And what are the behavioral shifts within your business to start with what they did in their lives based on what you did to them, not survey scores? And it's about honoring them. If you've got a $30 million customer, are you charging them really $35 for changing an order? Really? So <laughs> competency one, <laughs> honor and manage customers as assets. Should I go on? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Competency two is aligning the work of the organization around the customer journey. So building the organization with the starting point of your customer's life and the separate sections of activities and objectives that they want to achieve, not starting with your silos, munging all those together and having that become your defaulted customer experience. It's also about focusing and understanding that, you know, yes, you may have 250 touch points, but there's 10 to 15 that are most critical to you. I'm really right. shorthanding here for you. Competency three is building a customer listening path, meaning ag aggregating multiple sources of listening, emancipating from that fixation on the survey score to tell the story of customers' lives, using voluntary feedback from social media, complaints, using experiential listening, creating an environment where your leaders and everybody in your company has to do what you expect your customer to go through. And then right. finally, validating it with survey results, but don't start with that score. <coughs> start with the life. Tell the story of the life by journey stage, not in a dashboard where every silo cherry picks separate actions and we come up with a lot of activity, but we're not really, really solving and improving customers' lives. 
Right, right. That is so, so true. And and you also focus on, on three things that I, I think are just so important, and that is driving simplicity yes. throughout everything. You know, I, I mean, I'm just getting ready to launch a new technology product. You're and it, it's about as simple as it could possibly be. But uh, last night at, at like 2 in the morning, I decided to go to usertesting.com, which for those of you who are building technology products, they are amazing. And I crafted a script to have them run through, you know, 20 or 30 different questions that I wanted answered, you know, paid a couple of hundred dollars. And then this morning at eight o'clock, I already had all of these videos of them actually using my product. And what I thought was simple in certain things, now I know. And I mean, we've always had focus groups and and Mm -hmm. usability testing, but we're in this new age where it's so incredibly uh, accessible, but having that feedback allows you to drive simplicity into product. And then, you know, I, I am hoping you go into a greater level of depth on what you just talked about about simplicity in process and yes. in policy. That's policy right. drives me crazy. That's right. When, that's right. Yeah. Well, in fact, that's part of um, competency five. I'll go to four really fast, and then we'll jump to five too. Um, so four is is about process. It's about we need leaders to care with as much rigor, vim, and vigor that that they ask about sales goals or EBITDA to know about were we performing in the processes that interrupt or improve customers' lives. You know, right. If, right? If, if cycle time on getting a sample to you m- means if they're going to move forward or not, and you're not looking at that like a hawk and managing and watching that and caring about that and having a sick belly pains from that because you're not delivering, there goes all your future growth. And I'm not talking about a scorecard where the type gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, two or three things for each of these moments. So we need to know before our customers tell us if we're delivering for them or not. So that's proactive experience, reliability, and innovation. And kind of it's your revenue erosion early warning system. And the other thing about that is, you know, you just mentioned most companies have a really vigorous product development cycle and methodology. Why don't we have a customer experience rigor and discipline that's just as heralded, just as resourced? Because that experience has got to be wrapped around that product, and yet we let that kind of go to whatever each silo independently thinks of. Exactly, exactly. So true. Um, you know, as as I take a look at, at that, you also talk um, a little bit about um, the whole issue of role clarity and and the importance of adoption of you know once all of this has has been established and that the customer truly is is at the center uh, of the organization or in some uh, roles. I was with a, a client last week who who talked about and the CEO was saying, look, I really want the pyramid turned on its head. I right. want to be at the bottom, just clearing roadblocks for everybody so that we can serve the customer. And the customer has to be at the top, uh, at the broad end of the pyramid. So um, what, what's your take on that? And, and you know, it, is customer centricity um, the same kind of fad that some companies have with sustainability where they're just trying to tick a box saying that they're doing it rather than having it culturally ingrained in who they are? Well, it can be a fad, but it doesn't need to be a fad. And the reason, and, and I'm going to talk about competency five now, which is that you, you teed that up so beautifully. Culture are, is the actions, not the words. People need proof. And so 
it can't be everybody go be customer centric. It needs to be connected, <laughs> and, right? Woo, woo, let's etch that on a crystal ball. Um, we, it needs to be aligned to the operation of the business, and that's why once you identify the stages of your customer journey, and we need to write the stages from the customer's point of view, not our individual stages, prospect close the deal. That's not a stage. That's what we want to get from customers. That's right. not an experience we want to deliver. So competency five, to your point, is by stage of the experience, talk to your employees and have them identify the stupid rules and policies that are preventing them from delivering value, that are making them do workarounds on a regular basis, and that are questioning your customer's integrity. That, if you start getting rid of, I, in fact, in the book I call it, get a create a kill a stupid rule campaign. If you start that stupid rule campaign and are fearless enough to have your employees identify them, celebrate those people who bring them up and get rid of them, they will hold a parade in your honor. <laughs> Absolutely. So Absolutely. Been, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, you, you, I think you were in the back of the room of the meeting I facilitated last <laughs> week. Yeah, and there's more in Competency 5, which is also about uniting leaders. You know, when when we start this work, and I'm sure you've seen this, Chicky, is that when you say, how are we doing? Everybody's like, well, we're doing pretty good. Look at all these actions, red, yellow, green dots. But all of those actions are internally driven based on meeting internal KPIs. We need to shift it and have leaders recognize, as a one company, are we delivering complete experiences to help customers achieve their objectives by stage and how are they driving accountability is your whole accountability cycle syncing to the cycle of your survey results the results come out everybody has an oh my goodness moment and then each silo goes into some well-meaning dashboard and cherry picks their individual products or projects to show they can get quote lift on the survey score and it's all about the score and not about the life so this is also about uniting leaders Um, one of the things I have people do is what I call a code of conduct, which I think you you might dig, Chicky. It's go by stage of the experience and articulate and have your employees involved what you must do in that stage and what you will never do in that stage to customers and to employees. And that's where it starts getting granular, and it's in that granularity that you change the world, not in the big helicoptering statements. Right, and you also make the point, and you said it another way a few minutes ago, that you really get to have to have people moving from talk to action. That's right. And, and you talk here about eliminating the baloney factor. How about expounding <laughs> on that for us a bit? Well, and eliminating the baloney factor is about, you know, if you say you're going to be customer-focused, it's action. So it means really living up to things such as we won't go to market until these five conditions are always met. We will never force our employees to um, be in a region where they have to make 15 calls to one customer, to five different customers in a single month because they don't have the capacity to do it. It's, <laughs> right? I, oh, I think customer. you need to call my husband's boss. <laughs> my, my husband is 64 years or 65 years old, I think, almost. And and he he sells a product that he you know has known and has been selling for ten years, and he has to make eight calls a day. See, and how customer focused can you really be? You go in, you have a cup of coffee, you do some kind of little hand wave, and you're off. Yeah, and you can then tick the box. Now, That's fortunately, right. he can count seeing multiple people within a given customer because those aren't calls over the phone; those are 
face-to-face he has to do. So, yeah, you're right. And we get so tied up in whatever that metric is. And, That's right. You know, I, I so often uh, quote when I go in and consult with my clients um, about, you know, that, that what you measure gets accomplished, right? That doesn't mean that you were supposed to accomplish it, right? Well, and, and people reward the- or people uh, repeat what you reward. And so this whole issue of metrics, I think, just screws us up because we're not sure how to measure the right thing. So I want to come back to uh, to the uh, competency that you talked about earlier about honoring and managing your customers as mm-hmm. assets of the yep. business. And that, that you know, I mean, it, it's common sense, but it's radical. <laughs> it's so radical. It's so radical. I call it customer math, and we actually, it's so fantastic. I have the most fun with this because I have people use whole numbers. Even retention rates give you a false positive, right? If you right. say, oh, we're at 79% retention rate, well, so what? That means you're not counting the 15,000 customers you're losing every month to stay at your 79%. I want to do, I'm Italian, I, I don't know if you've heard this word, it's also I think a Yiddish word, agita. I want to <laughs> yes. get people agita in their belly, make them a little sick to the stomach that human people are walking away from your business. And so this is about getting agreement as a company even around how you measure what's a new customer volume and value. All that does is measure your acquisition engine, right? Sale, 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 sale. That's what everybody talks about. But if we're really focused on customers' lives in the same breath, with the same rigor, we need to say, okay, how many customers did we lose volume and value? And why? Call lost customers. Get the voice of that human in your ear. And then do the math to know your net growth or loss of your customer base. And what this does, I think, Chicky, you're going to like this, too, is it takes the – this isn't about the sales organization. Sometimes there's a little bit of protectionism in the beginning, but that's not what this is about. Your net customer growth or loss is the outcome of your total experience, your brand that you've delivered to your customers, and right. it's them voting with their feet. And we need to care about that and talk about it fearlessly. Start every key meeting with every leader saying, look, we brought in 20, but we lost 15. And the right. 15 we lost were 10-year customers. Why did that happen? Right. So interesting. I, I remember hearing a story uh, uh, that was told by Terry Jones, who had been the founder of Travelocity. And uh, he and I had both kind of uh, – we got sucked into the American Airlines uh, Sabre culture oh. um, You know, back in the early 80s when the company yep. that we both worked for here in Tampa was acquired – uh, by American Airlines, and uh, you know he ended up just rising uh, to the top of the organization. He was a technical whiz, um, but when he founded Travelocity, they actually moved out of the corporate headquarters of American Airlines and Sabre over into uh, kind of a warehouse building. And one of the things he did is he installed a uh, one of those red phone booths from London. Oh my gosh! Okay, and he piped into that phone booth. Anybody could walk in at any time and pick up that phone and listen to customer care phone calls. And every person in the company had an amount of time that they had to go and listen to those. And I I was just envisioning in my head having that same thing, but having that, uh, you know, those calls be the outbound calls to new customers and to lost customers and let everybody hear what that sounds like. Well, and, and that's actually one of the big things that we do frequently when we kickstart this work, especially with leadership teams, is we have them call 
lost customers, and sometimes they're afraid. They're like, what, if, what do I say? I said, here's what you say. First of all, no, this is not a sales call. This is not about getting them back. This is about listening and apologizing. And so all you have to say is, gosh, we see that you've lapsed, you know, that you're not with us as much or that you've left us, and can you tell us what happened? And then be quiet. And and I say, what I also say is the first thing you might hear is a thump as they fall off their chair. Um, right. Because they're so, but then they, the the conversation grows and flows organically from them if it is genuine. And what's interesting is that voice, that human voice, we get more impact from the human, you know, showing of the experience more than presenting all these crazy survey results. We need to have the voice of the customer in people's ears. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of companies are starting to do it. I mean, that whole idea of the red phone, Adobe has a listening station, for example. I talk about it in my new book that um, anybody at any time can go into this listening room and listen to incoming customer calls. Um, they also have an executive immersion process where they they require their leaders to try to download PDFs and sign up for things and, and other things. And until we we create rigor around walking in our customers' shoes, things aren't going to change. You got to do what you're forcing your customer to do. Otherwise, you don't realize those clunky processes. Like you said, that thing you sent off for your new product, until you saw people trying to do it, you didn't realize because you're so in the thick of building the thing. Right. Well, and and the things that we put out there that we think are clear that are completely invisible to the customer. It's like I kept wanting to point to it and say, <laughs> "Press there, press there. It's right there." Right. <laughs> you're looking well, right at it. Well, and that's because we we get so, you know, excited about it. Right. And um, we've got to start with the customer, not the, you know, I tell a story when I give keynotes uh, is, you know, if you're a drinking cup manufacturer, do you start with the mom or do you start with the cup? If you start with the cup and you bring a bunch of moms in and say pick a cup, you know, she'll pick a cup, but you didn't you didn't sit there and watch when the cup topples over and there's milk all over the floor. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you sat there and watched it, you'd be inspired to innovate in a different way. So we have to start with the life. Right. And and so, you know, we've talked about the customer experience. And, and mm-hmm. so the second thing in, in the second major competency is aligning around experience. Right. And so are you talking about the experience of the team or the experience of the customer? The experience of the customer, and what's interesting is a lot of people are using journey mapping now. It's like a shiny object. I'm sure you've seen it. But this is not just about having a great journey mapping exercise with a lot of Post-it notes, and then maybe you hire somebody who Visio maps everything, and now you've got Visio blindness because you've got 15 binders full of Visio process maps. I, again, this is Visio is great, but it needs to be focused. So the work around this is to say let's change leadership language. Instead of having the report out for the CEO go around the table and say marketing, operations, claims, you know, investment, whatever silo, what are you doing? Instead, let's say, okay, let's talk about the onboarding experience. Walk me through it. Show me what happens today. Walk me through what the customer has to go through, what's working and what's not. Okay, let's talk about the um, new customer experience. Until leaders start changing their accountability talk track, and how they ask for and guide the organization by these journey stages, we're going to stay in those silos that we're comfortable with. And so it's every competency I guide people through in this book is, yes, there's some operational things, but it's also about changing the talk track of leaders, uniting them to guide the organization in a certain way, and creating focus. So 
focus is really important because we can't boil the ocean in this work. It, it implodes when people try to take on too much too fast. So this is also about saying, you know, across those, maybe you have six stages of your customer journey. We know there's ten touch points that are the most critical. Start focusing on those first. Got it, got it. And, again, once once you sit down and, and map them out from the customer's perspective, right. uh, making you. your organizational structure uh, responsive to that. And I think that that is so smart. And, you know, I don't know how many companies actually think about their impact on the customer's lives. I mean, they think about the features and benefits of their product, and, you know, every good salesperson can articulate their unique selling proposition. Right. Exactly. But the unique impact on their customers' lives would be a new great metric. Exactly. And, and you know, this goes back to this whole notion of clarity of purpose I talked about in the dog book, and I give people tools for building it in the new book. And, and this is the whole idea. And people say, well, we have a mission statement. And I said, that's not what I'm talking about. Go read your mission statement. I guarantee you it's about how big you're going to become, your position in the marketplace, and how you want to make sure you're number one or whatever and who you are. Clarity of purpose from a customer standpoint is a decision guidepost. So in that drinking cup example, um, one company said we're a children's drinking cup company. The other company said we're supporting parenthood. Two completely different ways to go to market. Right. And so if you're supporting parenthood, that means you're not going to send out a cup without that's got a lot of little parts that's going to drive a, cus a parent crazy trying to wash it in the dishwasher, right? Right. If you're supporting parenthood, you're going to educate more than you sell because you're going to earn the right to growth. So – how are you supporting customers' lives? And does that clarity become a decision-making guide that guides every silo so you start to unite in a congruent and common way what you will do and what you won't do? Got it. Got it. Well, that makes so much sense. And so when, once they have done that, um, you know, I, I love how you then move on to talking about creating this proactive experience and, and not be uh, reactive. And I, right. I tell you what, I, I worked for a client in New York a couple of years ago, and, you know, I actually told them that they needed to create an official uh, firefighter role and bring in <laughs> a red hat and, you know, put it on that person because firefighting was everyone's job and it was all they did all day long. And so what you're talking about here is that that innovation in how you manage that experience is knowing before the customers tell you and, and to be able to predict where the experiences are going to be unreliable. Well, yeah. I mean, here's the thing that's important about reliability. In a world of social media, if your experience isn't reliable and consistent, people aren't going to vouch for you. When I do this work around the world, I'll bring people up on stage by stage of the experience and I'll say, is it 100% reliable? Is it usually unreliable, or is the answer to the question, it depends? It depends on the channel. It depends on the person. It depends on who answers the phone. And most companies' experiences are in the it depends stage because they have kind of haven't said, to your point, you know, if, for example, something simple, getting a test drive, um, if you're a motor vehicle company or you sell um, recreational vehicles, we know getting a test drive is one of the gating requirements for if a customer is going to start loving the thing and then wants to buy it. 
but yet we haven't created rigor around if a customer calls in or goes on your website and wants a test drive, we don't really track how many dealerships are within their three-mile radius. We don't track how frequently they're able to ride the actual vehicle they want. We instead ask a question two months later, how was the test drive? We, we don't manage the operational processes that impact how was the test <laughs> right. drive. And, and, and if we did manage those, we could be reliable. We could know before our customer tells us in a survey, well, test drives aren't going great because 90% of the time they couldn't ride what they wanted. Right, right. So once you've gotten a handle on that and are delivering not only innovation but, but reliability and, and right. being a, a company that your customers can actually count on and they, they will vouch for you, um, you still have to bake this into your culture. That's and right. And, you know, again, it, you have to, and I, I hate to use pat phrases, but you do have to walk the talk. That's right. And you have to hold people accountable, and you do have to measure the right things. Um, but there there are certain behaviors that are required to get these things embedded in the culture. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Sure, of course. In fact, at the back of every ch chapter, I have listed what I call leadership recipe cards, um, which is kind of funny. It sounds a little silly, but every leader has asked me to, you know, just tell me what to do. And first of all, I say, well, this isn't what to do, but let me give you a few things that if you do these three things on a regular basis um, as a united leadership team, you're going to start to turn the tide. So, for example, I'm scrolling. I'm in the book right now, and I'm scrolling um, down to the bottom of of um, chapter Chapter um, one uh, on competent customers as assets, and I want to just give you um, the, the the recipe cards there. And right. I, I end the back of every chapter with recipe cards. So, for example, honor and manage customers as assets. Um, here's some some of those recipe cards. Every leader starts their meeting with employees by fearlessly sharing the growth or loss of the customer asset. Evolve leadership messaging from getting the score to earning the right to growth. Number two, mm. create create a kill a stupid rule movement, encouraging employees to identify rules that erode customer trust and diminish employees' ability to do their job. These are actions, right? But right. they have to be done consistently. Reward for the identification of rules that just don't make sense and kill those rules and let your employees know. So each of these are how to align the leadership team, how to give permission, and then how to prove it with action. So proving it with action, put the voice of your customer in your ear. Every month, call lost customers to care about the why and humanize the life of the customer. Tell the story of customers' lives to your employees. And then reward for customer asset growth. Move your overall customer-focused success metric from survey scores to overall performance and customer asset growth, mm. the true measure of your customer experience. Love it, love it. So, um, and this isn't the last chapter, it's actually the penultimate <clears throat> chapter is about staging the work and, and you know, that, that you can't change overnight, that right. you have to break things into attainable segments. And yeah. you've got some ideas about how to make that happen, I'm sure. Well, yeah, and I mean, the, the reason this work implodes is because people want to do it all at once. So, for example, um, you may be a B2B to company, so a company that sells through distributors, and that means you have a distributor journey map and you have a customer journey map. Pick one. 
don't do try to do it all at once. You may have 15 countries. Pick one country to learn it in, and then you know, package it up and have everybody learn with you. Um, but don't try to do all 12 countries at once. Even within each of the five competencies, don't wait to be perfect. For example, competency one, managing customers as assets, you're not going to have a system that organizes all the data from all your operational silos to spit out, you know, like Willy Wonka, your everlasting gobstopper, your everlasting customer asset metric on the first day. The first time you try to do customer asset metrics, you're going to have to go in and, you know, retrieve data um, manually from lots of different pots and aggregate that to create your new customers. You're going to have to do the same thing to do your lost customers. But just start with your clunky version of that. Don't right. wait until it's perfect because you'll never begin. Clunky is my mantra. Start with clunky. You'll get Aww. better from there. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> No, I tell you what, we're 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 going through this whole process right now, and we're fortunate that we don't have to recraft uh, a broken organization. Mm-hmm. But each one of us who comes to the table brings baggage and broken right. ways that it's happened in the past. That's right. So it sticks with us. Giving permission to start clunky, I really appreciate that because I've been a bit stressed this week about, uh, you know, really trying to get everything right up front. And, you know, there just aren't enough hours in the day, especially in an entrepreneurial environment. So you already mentioned a little bit about the last chapter uh, in the book, which Mm -hmm. is about establishing and filling this chief customer officer role. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just I think it's so refreshing uh, in fact, I bristle a little bit when I see somebody who's got chief revenue officer on their card because I think, really? You know, do you really want your customers to see that that's what you care about? <laughs> so well, hopefully, yeah. hopefully you address this in, in the whole culture and getting everybody ready uh, with a job description and role definitions for this well, position. Absolutely. Well, because my big thing when I talk to people, I say you have to earn the right to growth. You can't go get growth. Even the word loyalty drives me a little crazy now. I mean, it was in my second book title, and people know the word, so we use it. But loyalty, in a way, has become something to go get from customers. You know, everybody's doing the math. We've done a regression analysis, and we know that customers with two lines of business are more loyal than customers with one line of business. So everybody go sell the second line. Hurry up, hurry up, because we'll get more loyalty. Well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what about doing the first line right so you earn the right to the second line? Right. Ta-da! So <laughs> I, it's like, what, what? So so the I've actually rewritten the um, chief customer officer to be the architect of the growth engine. You know, this isn't a power grab, this role. This role is about building the engine that's repeatable so we're not reacting. So we're not syncing our actions to the cycle of the survey scores oh, the cycle came out, we better be customer-focused, and then two months later after nobody's looking at the survey, okay, we're done, we're going to go back to our real jobs. We need to unite the leadership team in building this out. In fact, when I coach um, senior leadership teams and the chief customer officer, we actually have, we assign, let's say you've got ten leaders, we've got five competencies, I'm doing easy math. We assign two senior leaders and then a little team to work with them to build their first beta version of each of the five competencies. Right. Because they need to be part of that. And then that gives clarity to the chief customer officer role as well. So I wrote the role, this, 
the role description around um, being the architect of the customer-driven engine and what that means to um, build out your company's version of the five competencies. What's cool throughout this book is that I had this great, joyous process of interviewing um, over 40 chief customer officers um, throughout the book, and their stories are peppered throughout it. And, um, for example, we have Martin Hand, who um, is now the chief customer and donor officer of St. Jude's Children's Hospitals, and he talks about what questions he needs answered when he takes on a role like this. Um, and so we've got those kinds of those stories peppered throughout this chapter as well as the other chapters. So we keep it real um, as well as giving information. Right, right. Well, Jean, I am so excited about this book. And as I told you before we got on the air, it just couldn't come at a better time in my own life, uh, you know, with what I'm doing and building this new company. Because we, you know, my consulting firm has been all about customer centric strategy, you know, for as long as we've been in existence. Um, you know, I shifted away from consulting about seven years ago because. Uh, you know, I really had a bunch of products inside of me that just needed to get out, and none of my customers were wanting to build them. So I decided <laughs> to go and build them myself. Um, but you know, I, I've I've been a little bit more than just a, an R and D shop uh, over the last few years, pouring money more money in than taking money out. But we're finally moving into the stage of becoming a business, and uh, so this kind of practical advice is just invaluable to me you know so even even if no one's listening which I know they are (laughs) this this was just for me (laughs) and I have to tell you I just I absolutely love I I always have Amazon up when I'm talking to uh, to my guests because uh, normally I'm you know looking at your table of contents of the book but I pulled up your author page and first of all your smile is just so contagious but the thing I love is your tagline that you list before you talk Mm. about your experience. I help Mm -hmm. companies grow by improving customers' lives. So, Jean, why don't you tell folks how they can get in touch with you if if they would like to transform how they operate because that's what you do as your day job. Mm. So how can they get in touch with you? Oh, thanks, Chickies. Yes, I am of the great fortune of uh, having married a guy named Bliss. So my website is customerbliss.com. I am on there. We're going to be launching a brand-new website in time for the launch of the book, but it's live right now, the older version. Jean, J-E-A-N-N-E, at customerbliss.com is my email. But if you go on customerbliss.com, you can find me very easily. Very cool. Well, we could go through all kinds of uh, stories about what your company could have been called <laughs> had you married somebody else. I always say, you know, my I, I had my name legally changed when I was 17 because I had always been called Chicky. My middle name happens to be Jean. So oh. when I changed my name legally, I went from J-E-A-N to J-E-A-N-N-E because I could, right? And I liked oh, that spelling. Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, but my dad, um, when, when I asked him, you know, because I thought I, I better ask ask my father before I go and ask a judge if I can change my name. And my father was, uh, he was very serious. He was a Mensa smart pastor and, you know, spent most of his time at home watching the news or reading the newspaper, right? So, you know, he wasn't known for his sense of humor. But when I asked him um, if I could change my, my name, and he said, well, as long as you don't change it to just, well, my last name was Wright. So my oh name would have been just gosh. right. And then I always said, you know, uh, it, 
I could have married a, an Italian guy named Cacciatore, and now I'd be Chicky Cacciatore. I mean, you oh, just no. never yeah, know yeah, about never names. Know. Yeah, I know my maiden name was Lombardo, which I love, but uh, I kind of bliss worked out really well. When yes, I'm on it stage, did. When I'm on stage, I say, hey, I had to go all over Match.com to find this guy. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, the funny story when you mentioned Match.com is I met my husband because I joined a singles dating service in 1990 when it was computer wow. dating. There was no Internet. Yeah. And he actually was the sales manager selling the $2,000 memberships. And I figured if some guy was willing to pay $2,000 to meet somebody, you know, it had to be pretty good. And then wow. I ended up uh, meeting him and marrying him two months later, and that was 25 years ago. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations. And, Chicky, congrats on your upcoming product. It's really amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Well, I will definitely share it with you, and uh, you know, I'm I'm definitely going to curl up with your book in a comfy chair Thank with you. my pen in hand because I always make notes uh, on those blank pages at the back that everybody wonders why they're there. Um, <laughs> you know, I I make notes about w- what I'm going to do as a result of reading the book. So well, I'm, I hope you find value from it. This is really my pay-it-forward book. I didn't think I was going to do it again because it's so painful, as you know, to write a book. But I yes. I needed to give people all of this new information. So it's my thank you to everybody for hanging with me and and, and, and doing this great work together over the past 12 years. It's It's been the ride of my life, and I really wanted to give back. So I hope you find real joy and value from it. Well, I know that I will. And, you know, again, thank you so much for spending your Friday with us. Where do you live, Jean? I'm in Los Angeles. Ah, okay. Yes. Terrific. Well, I'm, I am in the Bay Area, but that would be the Tampa Bay Area. <laughs> well, I'm actually coming there next week. I should look you up. Oh, my gosh. Yes, please do. I am home all week. Oh, lovely. Yes, I have a bunch of nieces' graduations. I'm kind of excited to go see my little nieces. They're so cute. Oh, fabulous. Yes, yes. Well, uh, you know, I'm sure you can get my contact information from Patty if you don't already have it. But thank you again so much for your time, and I am definitely looking forward to meeting you. And for those who would like to know more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, you can look at www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. And we also have both a public and a private Facebook page for our members. And we have tons of radio shows you can listen to on every topic imaginable from leadership and growth and innovation and life balance and giving back. And and, uh, just uh, if you need something to listen to in the car when you're driving uh, from here and there, uh, we recommend you download our iTunes channel. So thank you so much, Jean, and I uh, will definitely look forward to meeting you next week. Wonderful. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.